The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Welcome to this week's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we've got the latest AV news. I bring you behind-the-scenes details of the gadgets in my life this week. And Phil Hinton hosts another Home Cinema Roundtable discussion. This week's this week's Audio-Visual News. HD DVD and Blu-ray at bargain prices. New TV ranges from Sony, Sanyo and Toshiba. Sony bring Bravia projectors to market and Toshiba announce new DVD recorders. We start this week with the exciting downward turn in high-definition player pricing. In a recent press release from Jim Bottoms at Understanding and Solutions, it's claimed that hardware pricing for both HD DVD and Blu-ray players will be half their 2006 level by the end of the year. The rapid reduction of regular DVD pricing took many by surprise, and they felt this curve couldn't be recreated with high def, says director Jim Bottoms. But all evidence suggests that the price curve for the high def formats is mirroring that of DVD players. Bottoms predicts that by 2009, dedicated HD players will retail for £200. However, recent evidence suggests that buyers won't have to wait that long for bargain-priced high-def. Hardware depreciation is happening faster than for DVD. In response to Toshiba's recent HD DVD price cuts, Samsung has already slashed the retail price of its BDP-1000 player to £350 over the Easter holidays. There may still be a format war out there, but if prices keep going this way, people will be able to just buy both hardware devices and have the best of both worlds. Easter is a traditional start line for new product announcements from many of the world's largest CE companies, and this year is no different. First up is news of two Bravia LCD lines from Sony, dubbed the D3000 and S3000 ranges. The S3000 comes in 32-inch and 40-inch models, to be joined by a 20-inch and 46-inch model down the line. Connectivity will boast component, 3 HDMI and 2 SCART inputs. There's no confirmation on the D3000 sizes, but expect the same in connectivity, and both ranges will have Sony's new Theatre Sync function. TheatreSync compatible devices, including DVD, TV and home cinema systems, will all automatically switch on and configure themselves for the best audio and visual experience possible. The final new feature will please most home cinema enthusiasts as Sony introduces 24Hz compatibility. Full pricing and availability will be announced soon. Next up with LCD announcements is Sanyo, who introduced no fewer than six new models. The top two are due in 42-inch and 47-inch guises and boast full 1080p panels, double HDMI and SCART inputs, and digital tuners. The rest of the range will vary from 20 to 37-inch, with 720p resolutions, single HDMI and double SCART inputs. Again, pricing and full specifications are due soon. And the final LCD announcement comes from Toshiba. Three models, X-Series, Picture Frame LCD X Series and Z Series, both full 1920x1080p panels, 
a Freeview tuner and SRS WOW audio technology. The X-Series comes with two HDMI slots, whereas the Picture Frame LCD X-Series has a welcome three HDMI slots, plus a super slim bezel frame. Top of the pile, though, is the Z-Series, with three HDMI inputs and Toshiba's M100 picture processing, which doubles the image frame refresh rate from 50Hz to 100Hz. Now that you're all excited about seeing these new sets, maybe we should warn you that they're not going to land in the UK until this autumn. If it's a new entry-level LCD projector you're hankering for this summer, then Sony have an answer for you as they release their new Bravia projectors. Coming in two guises, the VPL-AW10 and the VPL-AW15 will be full HD 720p and offer a multitude of connections including HDMI. They also support full 24Hz compatibility with Sony's 24P True Cinema, enabling playback of films at the original cinematic 24 frames per second, which will sync with most new BD players. Brightness is rated at up to 1300 lumens, and the VPL-AW15 uses specifically modified LCDs, with a high contrast plate for stopping light from the lamp leaking through when the LCD is blacked out. Both models feature Sony's dynamic iris control which adjusts the iris scene by scene and the VPL-AW15 boasts a contrast ratio of up to 12,000 to 1. Sony have yet to announce the release date and pricing but expect these little babies to arrive during the summer months and at a very reasonable price. And finally, Toshiba may be in the middle of an HD format war but that hasn't stopped them releasing new DVD players and recorders this year. For standard DVD playback, both the SD270E and the flagship SD370E come in a new super slim design, incorporating PAL, progressive scan, DivX playback, component video outputs, MP3 playback and a JPEG picture viewer. The SD370E includes an HDMI output for upscaling DVDs to 720p and 1080i. It also supports HD JPEG viewing, allowing high-resolution photography to be viewed via a TV set. The company's new recorders, the DVR17DT DVD and RD97DT HDD stroke DVD, include analog and digital tuners, 7-day EPG with view and record, digital text, favorite channel list and parental lock functions. Additional features include PAL progressive scan, component, video output and time slip recording. Both recorders come with an HDMI output for upscaling DVD images to 720p, 1080i and 1080p. The RD97DT adds a huge 250GB hard drive, allowing up to 424 hours of recording, as well as the ability to pause and rewind live TV and edit recorded broadcasts for archiving on DVD-R, RW or DVD plus R, RW. It also features digital optical and coaxial outputs. Pricing and dates for the new range are yet to be confirmed. For up-to-the-minute AV discussion and hardware reviews, visit avforums.com. With more gadgets than QBranch. The name is Bob, James Bob. This is the AV Podcast. As many regular listeners to this podcast will know each week, I tell you what I've been up to in the world of gadget journalism. And I guess this week's most impressive piece of kit has to be Nokia's 
N95. Possibly one of the most sought-after mobile phones of recent months. I've mentioned it before on this podcast. I'll mention it again because I now own one as opposed to just having a, a review unit. You know, it's an interesting piece of kit. People get very excited about the fact that it's got a GPS on board and supposedly maps for just about everywhere. The one thing that um, most operators don't tell you, though, is that the maps aren't, aren't stored locally. They're stored on, uh, in my case, Orange's servers. And so if you go to a particular place and you want to see the moving map of that area, it'll be downloaded for you via GPS or 3G, whatever the strongest signal is, or Wi-Fi, which it's capable of, but usually via some cellular data mechanism because, you know, most of us driving around in our cars, you know, aren't going to be uh, lucky enough to have a Wi-Fi hotspot available. So the bottom line is these free maps aren't exactly free unless, of course, you've got and eat as much as you like data bundles. So do be aware of that. Another feature that... um, I think hasn't been mentioned that much certainly in the kind of tabloid press because this N95 has been all over the newspapers I think because many people are seeing it as the only real contender to go up against the iPhone when it's released in America this summer and in I think it's November in the UK so one of the functions that has been missed in the Ferrari uh, is the HSDPA the high speed download packet access Uh, again I've mentioned that probably in relation to this handset on this podcast so forgive me if I'm repeating myself but it really can't be overstated HSDPA is kind of 3G with with rocket motors on if 3G is a is a sort of Porsche 911 then HSDPA is a dragster uh, I followed the story and d- the development of HSDPA I-, I would say more closely than any journalist in the UK I mean I've actually been to the Isle of Man and I took part in some research when they first established the UK's first HSDPA network. And it's quite an exciting technology. It is capable of a theoretical maximum of 1.8 meg, which um, you know essentially means you've got your kind of 2 meg home broadband connection in your pocket. Obviously, it invariably doesn't get up to that, that kind of speed. But um, the Vodafone card that I've been trying uh, of late, which is a kind of USB plug-in to my MacBook, that's capable of HSDPA and I've actually had it operating at just about 2 meg so it is you know the networks are there in fact oddly that was in Italy but anyway I digress back to the N95 it's got HSDPA uh, it's got 3G it's got GPRS it's got Bluetooth and Wi-Fi it's very well specced up and of course the GPS on board the one thing that um, I have found and I'll, and I'll probably finish up now otherwise you're going to be going N95 crazy with me rabbiting in your ear is a barcode scanner, which maybe, I don't know, maybe you out there listening to this have come across this before. I've never come across it before. So the phone uses uh, a Symbian operating system, you know, the, the, the standard operating system for, for all Nokia N-series phones. Uh, and then tucked away in the tools area, I think it is, or applications, is this barcode scanner, which utilises the camera on the phone and kind of sets the flash off on this this weird kind of routine uh, and attempts to scan any barcode that you put in front of it so i tried a bottle of water but it didn't actually recognize it but it did motivate the flash in a way that made me think the camera knew there was a barcode in front of it i was actually holding the bottle right in front of the lens uh, it just couldn't recognize the the barcode and i think that's a very very exciting innovation it's often the case that um, you know software applications turn up on new operating systems and on new phones they're not in the manual and they don't actually um, explain themselves very well and then six months later you know they're they're the latest killer app so anyway if you've got an n95 uh, look out for that if you if you know what this bar scanner software is maybe you could um, let me know at jason at jasonbradby.com that's it for me more from my world of gadgets next time brought to you by av forums and avplay.com oh my god 
my God. Is there nothing you people can't do? This is the AV Podcast. This week's roundtable discussion, hosted by Phil Hinton. And it's time for yet another roundtable discussion here on the AV Podcast. And I'll introduce this week's panel to you. First of all, we've got uh, John Carlo. Hi, John. Hi, Phil. Uh, Neil Davidson from TNW Marketing. Hi, Neil. Hi, Phil. And Seth Gecko. Hi, Seth. Hi, Phil. Uh, this week, we thought we'd move away from the uh, display side of things and tackle sound. So let's start with the basics then. Obviously, surround sound has been around for a number of years now. It was first introduced into cinemas in 1976 first real film to take advantage of it was um, the Star Wars film back in 77, 78 and uh, ProLogic hit the scene, if I get my dates and uh, years correctly uh, back in 1985 with Yamaha uh, with their first processor and we had ProLogic for a number of years um, until Dolby Digital came on to the scene in the UK courtesy again of Yamaha in their 1390 and via Laserdisc so, guys, um, that's two of the sound formats. Um, what about the other formats we've had since then? We've got Dolby Digital, DTS, 5.1, 7.1. What's what's your ideal setup for your own homes? What what have you found out over the years playing with these sounds? And we'll start with John. Ah, well, I mean, uh, I've played around a lot with the speakers and what setups will work best in my in my rooms that I've had. Basically, at the moment, I do prefer now, I'm going back to 5.1, the original, um, you know, not 7.1. I tend to not use that now as the 5.1. I, I seem to get the best sound um, from a system and obviously dot one being the sub. Um, I was running at 1.2 subs and now I've gone for one big one um, again. But yeah, 5.1 is where I'm at. And it's I, I do prefer the range of, of you know the material that there is Dolby Digital and DTS because really if you think about it there's not much encoded for 6.1 um, and 7.1 is just a studio of what 6.1 is anyway. And what about you, Seth? What kind of system are you running at the moment? It's a 6.1, uh, effectively. So I had the 5.1, and as soon as they brought the EXES out, um, which made use of the uh, centre speaker at the rear, I had to get an amp that had that and then uh, set the speakers up accordingly so you've actually gone with a 6.1 system excellent and uh, let's move on to neil neil um 5.1 7.1 i would imagine it's going to come down to room size as to exactly how many uh, speakers you go with and w- what sound system you go with would that be accurate well it was certainly interesting to hear john say that he's gone back to a 5.1 system um, i actually run a 5.1 system myself um, and I have to say, for a lot of the jobs I do, I still recommend 5.1 systems. As you say, a lot of the problem tends to be with the room size. To get the full effect from a 6.1 or 7.1, you do need to have a fair bit of distance away from the, the rear wall so that you can follow the various standards that are out there. Uh, if you look at the DTS or Dolby Digital websites, for example, they have quite good information about the distances and uh, locations for the speakers. And really in most living rooms, it's pretty difficult for people to achieve that. And I found also in a lot of dedicated home cinemas, it can be difficult for people to achieve that space at the back. And if you don't have the space, the the 7.1 or 6.1 just seems to uh, overcrowd. You don't get that same sense of, uh, of space at the back there, certainly in my experience. And the other thing as well, uh, with the 6.1, typically they're actually matrix channels as well. So there's a certain argument for how much they, they actually add to the sound. 
at the moment with our current DVDs. That is interesting because myself, I've gone from 7.1 back to 5.1, mainly because of the space issues that I have. And I have a dedicated room, um, but I've gone back to that. And, uh, and another argument or another way of looking at things is um, what kind of surround speakers that we use in our system. Now, if you read, like you say, Neil, the DTS, Dolby Digital, and even THX's standards for the types of speakers to use, they tend to recommend that you use the same uh, make and model of speaker across the front three and then they vary on the rear channels from either the same type of speaker, either directional, or in the THX case, they tend to suggest that you use a, a, a bipolar speaker. In, in your experience, which have you found to, to give you the better effect? Well, a lot of that really does come down to the room, though. So I, I personally uh, like a directional speaker. If it can be set up uh, properly, a, a monopole speaker basically is what we're talking about there. If you can follow the, the, the various uh, standards and get some, some angle on the rear speakers. Um, when you can't get the angle and you need to have the rear speakers kind of level with the uh, the main seating position, I tend to find that a bipole gives a, a much more pleasing result or even a dipole speaker in there. And what about you, John? What are you running on, on your system? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, basically I've got tripoles using M&K. Um, now, they're, to be honest, they're the best I've found that work so well. Um, in particular, mine are column surround, so they're sort of domesticated for domesticated use like living rooms and uh, so it is a very good quality sound um, and it also gives a sort of feeling of height whereas you can't mount the seat because I can't mount, mount speakers high up on the ceiling um, being, a, being a, basically a lounge um, so it sort of gives me the, the best of both worlds where it sort of it gives me that effect and it works very very convincingly well yeah and what about you, Seth? Um, I have a pair of bipoles um, and a centre speaker, all of the same manufacturer, for the for the rears um, and the fronts um, are all Wolfdales, so I kind of stick to it to a degree. Although my rear speakers are completely different manufacturer to my fronts, um, and I have a, a Velodyne uh, sub, so I've got Wolfdale fronts, um, LTAX on the rears, and a, and a Velodyne sub. So. Neil, is there any um, fast rules that we should really be sticking to? I mean, I've always gone with the the concept of having five identical speakers. I use five identical speakers um, in my system. They're all from the same manufacturer. They're all uh, tonally balanced the same. But is there any f- hard and fast rules as to, you know, should you use the same manufacturer throughout or can you mix and match? Well, certainly uh, in my experience, I prefer, if possible, to use uh, matched speakers uh, if you can't use match speakers, then you move to speakers from the same manufacturer. For the mains, it's not so important for the subwoofer, of course. Um, and the reason for that is uh, I, I really look to have uh, speakers that, uh, as you say, are tonally matched. and They have the same voicing and, and face characteristics and all of these kind of things. Um, and the best way to think about that, especially up front, is if you have a, a car going across the screen, for example, as it moves from left to right, the, the left speaker, if you have a different centre channel, it will have a different sound as it pans across the, across the sound stage. You know, you'll get a slightly different tonal characteristic from the front speaker that can be very jarring, um, and you typically don't have that problem uh, when you use matched speakers across the front. I also like to use matched speakers at the rear for the, for the same reason. It makes the panning a lot smoother typically. 
However, it's not quite so important for the rear speakers. So let's move on to the environment in which people's speakers are used. The majority of times it's it's going to be the front room, it's going to be the living room, and, and obviously placement of the speakers is going to be um, somewhat domestically challenged uh, now and again. If you have a dedicated room, then well, basically you can put the speakers in the ideal positions. But if, if you're having to, to put stuff in a living room, Neil, what, what advice would you give to people? Uh, the thing to look for when, when putting stuff into a living room is uh, really to, to try and fit it around your environment as much as possible while still following the standards. As I mentioned, if you have a look on the Adobe website, there's an excellent guide under room layout and speaker setup. Now, people should consider that Especially for your fronts, the front three speakers, so the front left, centre and front right, you really need to try as much as possible to uh, to go with the, the, the angles and so on suggested on the Adobe website. The distance from the seating position is not so important because you can typically use your receiver or your amplifier or your processor to, uh, to make up for those using delays if there are distance differences, but you can't do anything about the angles. So if you can really try and follow the, those guidelines on the Adobe website, uh, for your front three, that is the most critical. Um, and then for the rear channels, uh, it's usually a lot more difficult in a typical living room to get the rear channels in a perfect position. But again, using those guidelines on the Adobe website, you can usually get them pretty close and get a sound that would be much more uh, pleasing than if they'd just been positioned uh, rather randomly, as you sometimes see. So, um, John, you've been a, a, a home cinema fan for a while. You've obviously, uh, you're the type of person, much like me, who has to try all the latest toys and uh, different ways of setting your system up. So, over time, w- what have you found to be the best approach for your home theatre? Well, I mean, obviously, we were speaking about matching of speakers now. I mean, that is really essential and that is most important um, but also um, as Neil was saying the positioning uh, if you follow the guidelines um, generally set out then obviously you can get the you can get it pretty much close to to as best as possible um, or the best setups should I say um, I mean I've most importantly as well is is a lot of people and most people as you said have do not have dedicated rooms they're in the lounge so um, Aesthetically, they have to to think of where they're positioning these speakers to please not just yourself but also your other half or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I mean I've learned that the fact of it is you, the, the 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 positioning of the, of the front three speakers obviously across the front soundstage that has to be that is set. I tend to keep them at a distance where depending on the screen size, um, you know, it's it should really keep. I try and keep them as level as for, um, off the off the ground as much as possible, so they're all basically in line with each other. The rear speakers, as I said, I use tripoles, so I found that the, obviously the tripoles work best for me in um, my home environment. Ideally, I mean, I would like speakers set high on the ceiling um, uh, or on the wall, should I say, two at the sides and two behind. But again, it's limited by by the actual environment that I, li- you know, my seat is back against the wall, so therefore um, I don't have much choice in that. So the tripoles give me that sort of flexibility and and the surround sound that I need for my room. Um, another point as well is obviously the position of the sub. Now setting up sound, um, the sub is probably one of the most important because if a, if a sub is in the wrong position, you will get the sub sounding terrible. It'll make the system sound boomy. It won't make it sound right. So the sub is going to be probably the most important part of, of, of setting up. And once you get that, that right, 
um, and you find the best position for it, um, it you know it comes together. Obviously, there's there's different approaches even to the front speakers. We we've, we've touched on the the rears, whether we go bipole, dipole, monopole. Um, the front speakers they they make a big difference as well, and lots of people like floor standards. Other people like uh, a subsat setup. Um, I understand, uh, Seth, you've got floor standards in your system. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I have. And uh, John, you use M and K one fifties, so they're subsats. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't get on with floor standards in my room, unfortunately. And I use uh, monitors myself, which are crossed over. Um, at 80 hertz, so I'm effectively using a subsat system. What about yourself, Neil? What do you you use? Uh, I also have a, a subsat system. Okay, well, let's go to floor standards first. Um, it was interesting the comment you made there, um, John, regarding floor standards. Do you yeah. want to go into that? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've I had some years back. I did try floor standards, and and to be honest, they just didn't work in my room, even even with. Um, crossing it over quite high, say 80 hertz, where my floor standards will probably go down to about 50 hertz. That crossover is not a brick wall. Um, you know, the speakers work and they still go. And because they're ported, um, I tend to get the, the, the base was where I couldn't control it. With the satellites, they, they drop off quite rapidly uh, down from 80 hertz below, um, which is nice. So therefore, with the room that I've got, um, it works much better that way. Um, it gives you the, the ability then to control your bass um, with obviously what we, we've spoke about probably before and that about EQ and it gives you that choice and, and it gives me the flexibility to actually you know get it sounding better and, and I've found that working with sats and a sub I get the best sound in my room. Neil, is there any reason why you went subsat? Uh, it's actually very simple, it's a lot easier to get a good bass response with a subsat system, it's, it's really as simple as that. Um, I'm quite lucky with the companies that I work with it would have been quite easy for me to go with a full range system um, and I know that a lot of uh, people who listen to stereo music still like a full range system but when you're doing a, a subsat configuration once you get the crossover set correctly um, it's much easier to get a smooth bass response through positioning of the subwoofer um, typically you'll find in, in some rooms the subwoofer doesn't go in the most in intuitive of places for the best bass response but the difference between just whacking it down in, in the most convenient position and putting it in the correct position can be really fantastic and it's something that people don't appreciate of what they could could be achieving from their system uh, moving the subwoofer is of course a free upgrade just requires a little bit of effort on people's people's behalf to get that improved response and using the subsat system really allows you to have a full range uh, sound but also to, to get the benefits of that smooth bass from correct positioning of the subwoofer. So simply that's the reason I have a subset system. Well it's interesting you mentioned the subwoofer. We will come on to that in a second because I just want to direct this question to Seth. Um, Seth you use four standards. Is there any particular reason why um, you use four standards? No, is the easy answer. Um, I've had them quite a while. Uh, kind of attached to them um, and the other reason really is the room wouldn't really work with um, speakers on the wall as it stands so I haven't got a choice either I have um, floor standards or I have to pay more money for um, the actual stands for a subset set and basically I've just got so attached to the speakers um, I'm, I'm loath to get rid of them. Okay, Seth, uh, excellent. So let's go back to the subwoofer, Neil. And um, 
this is obviously going to bring us on to the next subject and the last subject for tonight, which is um, your room response. And it's something um, which we try to preach to people is that, you know, as soon as you put speakers in, in any type of room, the room's going to have some kind of impact on, on the speaker's performance and each room's going to be different. So even if you're using the same speakers as your mate, they're going to sound different in your room than they are in his room, depending on the room response. Now, we move from things from, from being rooms being reflective and bright to dull and acoustically dead or somewhere in between, depending on your furnishings and how the room's um, decorated. Um, but let's start with the subwoofer because the subwoofer seems to create the biggest amount of problems for people to get exactly right and it was interesting what you were saying that the subwoofer doesn't necessarily go in in what you think is the best place for it so can you just explain that a little bit more for people Neil? Yeah I mean it's it's quite simple um, when you place uh, any speaker in the room uh, as it moves it creates a, a certain frequency now we all know that the subwoofer is, is operating at the lowest frequencies typically up to say 100 hertz. Now those frequencies have the longest wavelength of course. Um, now when you have that in your room, uh, those uh, waves actually get bounced back off the walls, the roof, um, and what they do is they, they create a thing called a, a standing wave, um, and the standing wave will result in peaks of sound and dips of sound. Uh, depending on the room dimensions, those peaks and dips will be at very particular frequencies um, and it's actually quite easy to measure where those peaks and dips will be within the room. Now, once you know the peaks and dips, it's possible to position the subwoofer so that at the listening position you have minimised the difference uh, between the peaks and the dips, effectively that is the flat response that people talk about, um, or a flat air response. Um, and once you can achieve that at the, the listening position, you will have a much smoother bass. You won't find that one second the bass is difficult to hear and then suddenly deafens you as it perhaps becomes a little bit higher. And that's all as a result of, of standing waves and room nodes as they're known. How would people go, in a, go about working out where these waves are? I mean, is, is it a really complicated uh, process or is it something that somebody can sit down in an evening and, and go through and, and figure out? Well, it's, it's not a hugely difficult process. It does involve a little bit of investment in, in money. It's something that I have uh, spent quite some time looking into recently. A common device that you see mentioned on the forums is the Radio Shack SPL meter. Now you can actually combine the Radio Shack SPL meter with a piece of software called the Room EQ Wizard um, and what that does is it takes various uh, sweeps of the room at different frequencies um, and once you go through the whole process it plots out your uh, your room response. Um, it's pretty easy for people to use and it doesn't cost a whole lot of money. A slightly easier device to use though is a device known as a real-time analyzer um, and the price of real-time analyzers has recently absolutely come down to an unbelievable level. For just over £200 now, you can actually buy a 12th octave resolution real-time analyzer. Now, all people really need to know about a 12th octave is that that is an extremely high level of accuracy. And what that will do is you just basically hold it in your hand and play pink noise through your speakers and it will plot the frequency response across the entire range in real time 
real-time analyzer, of course. Um, and when you can see that, you can simply move the subwoofer around uh, following some guidelines uh, until you get the flattest response, and then you sit back and uh, enjoy your newly improved sound. It's as simple as that. So, Neil, is it just the subwoofer that we should worry about in our rooms, or do all the speakers create problems? Yeah, all, all the speakers uh, contribute to, to different types of, uh, of room response problem. Uh, the subwoofer is most noticeable in, in domestic systems, typically, because the room nodes uh, can be so so impact uh, or have such a large impact on people's systems. Um, it's quite possible that without knowing it, someone could be sat right in a big dip in the subwoofer's response and have a very, very poor level of bass and not understand why it's so quiet. But if they were to simply move, you know, maybe one or two feet across in their chair, they would suddenly hear bass that was loud and clear, um, and that's simply a, a result of, of speaker positioning. Now, as I mentioned, the, the, the mode or the room node is related to the wavelength of the sound that's being created. So the higher frequency of sound, the shorter the wavelength, and basically you get more and more and more closeness of the standing wave. Basically, it's almost impossible to stand directly within a peak or a null because they're so close together. So room modes as you move into the higher frequencies become much less of a problem and this is actually why we like to use an 80 hertz uh, crossover frequency, that's the THX standard for an 80 hertz uh, crossover because typically once you get above 80 hertz the, uh, the, the room nodes become closer and closer together and, and are not such a problem for people. But yes of course there are a number of other effects that the speaker positioning um, and basically the room characteristics as well uh, will, will create. The other uh, noticeable problem that you'll find with speaker positioning is an effect called comb filtering. Now comb filtering is a result of the direct sound from speakers being heard at slightly different points um, and typically you get that if you have all speakers placed exactly the same difference from walls and the, the response arrives all at slightly different times and you get a, a smearing of the sound. If you actually look at that on a real-time analyzer it's quite easy to see comb filtering as dips and so on and so by actually just moving the speakers the whole front three maybe a couple of inches all in tandem you can remove the comb filtering effect um, which can have again quite a noticeable improvement in the sound quality for people at the higher frequencies. Um, so, so those are the two main room responses from, from the speakers. Uh, once you get into the higher frequency domains of course though you get problems with uh, reflections and room reverberance and so on uh, which can also have problems for people. We are starting to get a little bit complicated in what we're talking about here but it's, it's one of these things that, that you tend to learn the hardware is, isn't it Neil and unless somebody's there to sort of point you in the right direction it's it's one of these topics where you find the problems first and then you go and try and find solutions exactly now let's just say for a moment that we can move the speakers anywhere we like within the living space um, and we can move the subwoofer wherever we like within the living space does that make it easier to combat these problems sure the more flexibility that you have on the positioning of the speaker the less of these effects that you need to be worried about because simply you can position the speaker uh, correctly, and if you're using a subsat system, you can position the subwoofer optimally as well. 
so that comb filtering and uh, room nodes become almost a non-issue. Um, so certainly the more flexibility in the positioning you have, the better. Now let's just say that the missus isn't too happy with moving the speakers around the room um, and that she's laid down the law and the subwoofer has to go in that corner and the speakers must go in those positions. What can we do then to improve the sound quality? Yeah, I mean, really what we're saying there is this is the much more typical situation that people are faced with in a domestic environment. Uh, we'd all love to put the subwoofer in the middle of the room if it gave the best response, but, well, I know my wife wouldn't be too happy about it, and I'm sure none of you other guys would get away with it either. Um, the, the thing to use when we can't do that is we look at other means of correcting the room response. So we have some options uh, with room treatments to affect the response, um, but also now we are seeing more and more uh, very high-quality equalization solutions which apply electronic correction uh, to the signal before it is transmitted through the speaker, uh, which compensate for, you know, well, if, if the subwoofer's in the corner, you're getting a, an emphasis uh, from the, the three sides, the floor and the two, two walls, meeting, you get some emphasis which actually amplifies the bass sound um, and of course you can use an electronic equaliser which will reduce the level of the signal being fed to compensate for that uh, increased bass output. So yeah, equalisation really is starting to become the easiest option uh, to correct when you don't have full flexibility with the, the speaker positioning. Are we starting to talk about silly money here because um, you know equalisation does it come cheap? I know there's a, a, quite a few products out there now. Um, if we stick to parametrics first, which is obviously the major problem, is, is sub-integration. Um, what kind of products are out there and, and what kind of money are we talking about? Well, at the parametrics, you'll, you'll find the favourite uh, device on the forums is a little unit we call the, the base feedback destroyer from a company called Behringer. Um, and fun unfortunately, I think uh, Behringer have stopped making the BFD now, but people can still pick them up. And I'm not sure of the going price for them, but the last time I checked it was between 70 and £100. So really not expensive at all for a standalone unit, which they could use in conjunction with the Room EQ wizard um, to create their filters and so on. So OK, let's stick with the BFD. I have used that, and um, to be honest with you, I, I gave up pretty quickly because um, it seemed to be the amount of work going in was far harder than the... the promised result at the end. Um, John, I understand you also used the BFD. What were your experiences? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously suffer from some room nodes, as Neil has sort of discussed and obviously talked about in depth there. Um, unfortunately, that is something that subs do suffer from. And the BFD was the, at the time, seemed to me, was the only answer um, to try and sort of combat the, the room modes that I was getting and to, to tame the base, really. Um, the BFD as an actual unit, you know, for seventy, eighty pounds, a hundred pounds, or whatever it costs, is pretty cool. Um, it's a good piece of kit, but it's hard work. And you know, you've got a, an SPL meter um, and a notepad and pen, which I used at the time. Didn't have Rue at that point, and it used test tones. And I used to have to plot myself a graph on my PC, and um, it was very laborious. And but I did stick with it, and I got good results. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I was using that for some time and um, the results were good and it helped. But with the new Roo software that they actually use, um, a lot of people are now getting the benefit of actually having it sort of actually plot the graphs themselves um, via their PC. And it's, um, 
it's li it's a lot less more hassle to do it that way um, and easier for people as well. So that's the BFD. Um, the other product out there at the moment, I believe, is the Velodyne SMS One. So yeah. that works a little bit differently. Have you used that, John? Yeah, I've got one at the moment. I use it. Um, I've I've had that for about a year or so. Um, I did have Velodyne DD subs before as well, so I was pretty uh, familiar with the actual um, EQ, you know, the the software itself, and it is probably the most user-friendly one um, that I have seen. Um, very easy to set up. It has got an auto setup, but I like to do it manual um, and obviously change. You've got sliders, and you can actually pinpoint uh, very accurately the, the you know points of uh, you know the base where it's peaking um, and the one thing obviously what we talked about was the position of the sub now even though you've got that EQ device the positioning is the most important thing and if you can get that as best as possible then the EQ is a little bit easier but if you do have troughs I mean it can it can be a problem um, but to boost the actual signal I mean I wouldn't really go below 50 Hertz boosting um, maybe a usually I've got a thing a slight slight dip around 70 hertz and um, I've used the EQ with the SMS one and it's a great piece of kit it just gives a uh, you know a good sound the bass tightens up it gives you take away any boom that you had any groom modes um, and it is very very simple the only cost side about it is that it's quite expensive um, and maybe not everyone would uh, would be able to go that way but it's a very good piece of kit and uh, works works very well. The thing with using parametric equalizers is, yeah, great, it sorts out the bottom end, but what about the rest of the problems, Neil? Um, where do we go with them? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's uh, starting to become much more of a discussion point. Uh, typically, uh, the, the parametric EQs that we've had access to for reasonable money have been great for bass, uh, but forget anything above maybe even 300 hertz. You could do some stuff with room treatment, um, and room treatment is still a good way to go uh, if it's possible. Again, in your room, it's not always the most uh, wife-friendly solution to go for, for room treatment. Um, but now we're starting to see devices uh, from companies like Odyssey, uh, who are making full-range equalization devices. Um, and you're actually also starting to see uh, in receivers and so on from Pioneer, uh, from Yamaha, um, th their own systems and receivers from Denon and so on are actually using a, a version of the Odyssey software as well which do do uh, a full range EQ. With these integrated amplifiers, um, let's leave Odyssey to one side for a moment because I know we want to come on and, and discuss that. First of all, we, we've got various uh, versions from different manufacturers, so can you quickly go through them with us? Um, I, I can go through some of the features of them, I'm afraid I don't know the, the names of the various uh, different types. But typically what we're seeing is now that almost every manufacturer from Sony to Pioneer, Yamaha, Denon, etc. is offering an automated calibration facility with their amplifier. Now what they do is they supply a, a small microphone with the units that people can place in their seating position or at a number of positions throughout the room. Um, and the amplifier will actually generate test tones which are measured by the little microphone um, and the amplifier does some internal processing and creates its own parametric EQ filters. Now, there aren't so many of them that will let you go in and adjust those uh, EQ filters, but the results from them, um, when they first started to, to come around, maybe, what, three, four years ago, we started to really see this feature. The results, to be honest with you, were not the best. But now, the, the, the more modern ones are 
they're they're not too bad at all. Some are better than others, of course, but they're not too bad at all. Some of the newer ones. So, has anybody here used uh, one of these systems? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I've been I've been running with the Yamaha Z9 amp for a while, um, and it's basically they incorporate a system called YPAO, which is Yamaha Parametric Room Acoustic Optimizer. Um, it it basically works in the case of that you plug a microphone in and you put it in your seating position and as Neil said it gives out tones and uh, beeps and things that go around the room from speaker to speaker and it takes the levels and it makes the adjustments um, and it basically optimizes your you know the, the, the sound for your room um, now to be honest with you I mean obviously the Yamaha was it, it was pretty sort of it came in a couple of years ago now um, and it's to be honest with you it's not that accurate in an auto setup but it is useful because um, it has some good tools in there and you can actually use to you know to basically tr tweak the, um, the settings of the you know the different um, octaves within each channel um, I've actually I've only basically um, yesterday I was I picked up a Denon um, a Denon AVC A11 XVA uh, amplifier which is used in an order seat now for the first time I actually plugged that in and um, it, I put it in my listening position and it more or less set up my system perfectly which is um, quite a feat because I just I didn't have I didn't expect it to be that good um, and it's it's got some good features in there and I've set it up to a flat response an Odyssey um, uh, tweaked response and you can also have a function where it just tweaks the front free speakers and I have to say I'm, I'm pretty impressed with it it's uh, it's a nice piece it's it's not as advanced as I know the Odyssey system that they've got their own the actual unit out, but it gives ten channels of EQ and up to eight seating positions, which is um, which gives you some choice, you know. Um, and it certainly it certainly impressed me over the past day that I've had it, and I've sort of come to grips with it now and um, been playing some stuff this afternoon, and um, it certainly makes it makes a difference. And what differences are you noticing using the Odyssey? Um, I think basically, I mean, the, the sound, the panning is 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 much more fluid. I mean, I use all the same speakers, all M and K all round, so they they're pretty, you know, they're tonally matched really. Um, but it just seems to be it, there's more detail there in the sound. It's it just seems more fluid in the way it goes from speaker to speaker. It feels more convincing in in the sound field, and I think that's because I may have been losing some. Um, some sound in certain parts in certain frequencies because of my room um, not, not being perfect um, with not acoustic, no acoustic treatments and I think it's maybe just it's sort of brought out you know the sounds I was losing. Neil Odyssey is a, a very interesting subject and there, there seems to be a, a growing number of users uh, certainly with the integrated amplifiers out there do you maybe want to explain what Odyssey is actually doing and while you're doing that, there is one issue that seems to raise its head now and again, and that's the bass response um, when using Odyssey and integrated amplifiers. So maybe you could cover that as well. Well, sure, I can, I can certainly do my best to do, discuss uh, the Odyssey principles. Odyssey, people may not realise, was set up by Tomlinson Homan of THX fame. There's obviously some debate as to whether it's his initials in THX or not, but certainly he was there at the very beginning. Um, now, some years ago when he left uh, THX he actually went to, to uh, do some research in psychoacoustics and so on um, and they now actually have a, a large number of PhDs and lots of clever guys really um, 
at, at the university in California doing research solely in room correction technology um, and psychoacoustics and so on. Um, and, and what they did was they, they, they researched uh, what parametric EQs were doing and what they were doing wrong. Um, they researched the technology that was available in terms of DSPs and uh, all other kinds of, of, of processing that goes into creating the sound. Um, and what they've done over the, the past five or six years is really that they've come up with a whole suite of technologies uh, which they are able to bundle together. Um, and through that suite of technologies they can do correct room analysis. They have their own particular tones and so on that they use rather than pink noise which is commonly used. Um, the, the, the processing devices that they use are very high power. Um, uh, they're also very efficient um, so they, they, they can run quickly and apply good correction. They have huge, huge numbers of points compared with a typical parametric EQ. Um, on the more powerful than your devices, they have thousands of correction points rather than the 8 or 10 bands that you typically get with a parametric EQ. Um, and they also have you know, very detailed ways of analysing the sound from a number of positions. And really this is the key thing that the Odyssey does that a lot of the other technologies can't do. They, they analyse over a large number of positions. Um, on the Denon it's 8 for example, on the standalone unit it's up to 32 positions um, and because of this huge amount of data on what the room is doing it's possible to create some very very accurate filters and corrections uh, that really allow a larger seating area to be improved than you would get with a traditional parametric EQ where you're able to correct for one position but, but not for the others the filters really smooth out the response in a larger area so that more people can have you know, that, that, that smooth and accurate sound without the room interfering with what they're listening to. John, um, I'd like to ask, with your experience with the Denon over the last day or so, um, have you noticed any improvements in the, the reverberation uh, in your room? Has that been reduced by the Odyssey system? Well, I think it's just been... Um, it's. I mean, it, the way it's worked, it just seems to have made the sound field more convincing. The sound stage has sort of expanded at the rears, um, and I think that's because I'm hearing more of the sound rather than the reflections that obviously I'm maybe losing on some of the, you know, some of the, the soundtracks. Um, that seems to have been brought to light today more so because I've got more grips with the actual unit. Um, and it's, <clears throat> as I said, it, it seems like I'm hearing more of the sound. So the sound field at my rears, especially as well, is, is greater. So it seems a lot larger and I'm getting the panning from speaker to speaker. Um, I think, yeah, I think it probably has. I mean, there's a lot more into it that, that the Odyssey is doing. And um, it's clever stuff. It is clever. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to ask that question because one of the, the main things that the Odyssey can do is it actually works in the frequency and time domains. Um, the, right. the very, very few equalization systems can actually do. Typically, they just work in the, the frequency domain to mm. give that flat response. Um, but one of the things that the, the Odyssey uh, EQ suite, if you like, it tries to analyze the, the time response from the speaker. Now, if you were to imagine a, a short pulse coming out of the speaker, um, in a room, if you get some reflections off the walls and so on, you actually measure multiple responses at the seating position you know they sort of decay over time but you get multiple uh, pulses and if the, uh, the, the the first reflection as they call it 
is too close uh, in time or in amplitude to the direct sound, that can have a sort of a, a muddying effect. Uh, it really disguises the direct sound, um, which I think perhaps sounds like what you're describing there. Yeah, uh, and definitely. The, the Odyssey algorithms do everything that they can do in the, the electronic sense to try and compensate for those first reflections. Um, with, with first reflections, you can also do a lot with with room treatment, but the Odyssey really is is unique uh, among EQs in trying to treat that problem. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it certainly it, it seems as if it's worked for me, and as I said, I've only spent a day and a half with it, and the unit is. Um, I mean, I was watching, I've been watching quite a few films today, um, and it it just seems like I'm hearing more of the sound. I'm hearing it better in a way that it's it's larger at the rear. The f the front sound stage is 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 expanding its way anyway, but I suppose it is. I'm hearing more of the sound that I was missing um, previously. Yep, and one thing as well that's interesting. I don't know if you've done many experiments with switching the EQ on and off so far. I have, it seems to collapses as well, the sound collapses, do you know what I mean? It, it, I tend to lose, I lose something, it's as if when I turn the EQ off, the sound collapses at the rear, and, and, and not so much at the front, but it does definitely lose it. When it goes back on, it's as if the sound is opened up again at the back, um, which is impressive to... Is that, I mean, if that's the right terminology I'm using, yeah, but that's I mean, how it seems to me. You, can I ask, John, were you surprised <laughs> when you heard what you were listening to before? Yeah, I mean, it I mean, I thought it sounded good before, but I've I've missed out on that, and and I think that's where that's where the Odyssey's come in, and it it's got its advantages there because, as you say, it's 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 doing more than just the normal parametric EQs um, do. It's actually it's it's creating the sound field as it should be should be heard in, say, maybe a treated room, um, and it's it's maximising that. Um, which I can't, I can't, af I can't afford to not can't afford, but I can't be putting treatment room treatments in the living room, and you know it's it's preference to, it's it's a superb tool. Neil, um, one of the things on the forum is uh, a lot of people are using Odyssey within their um, integrated amplifiers. Quite a number are saying that the the bass uh, level has disappeared, or it's very low. Is there any suggestions that, that you can make as to what's actually going on there? Well, one of the things that the Odyssey tries to do is it tries to give a, a flat response. It does try and give a flat response. Now, what you usually find um, in setups is that people uh, have been running the bass a little hot, as it's known, without having a reference to work to if people haven't set levels and so on. They can tend to find that the, their bass that they've been listening to is, is higher than really it was intended to be, um, and, and that can be quite a an interesting effect for people that aren't used to hearing uh, the, the sort of lower levels of bass when it's not so blown out. Um, so that's certainly one possibility. Um, th there are a few other bits and pieces, though. It, it could be perhaps that there is some some setup issues and so on. And I know that there is some good information on the forums that people have given of of tips uh, to use to try and make sure that the measurements are done as correctly as possible. There are a few tips that people can follow uh, to help make sure that the setup goes as smoothly as possible. Uh, the first thing is to try and make sure that the room is quietened down as much as possible. Um, if you have uh, fans or projectors or anything like that going in the background, just switch them off uh, whilst you're going through the setup procedure um, and allow the device as good a chance as possible to make accurate measurements of the responses. Uh, rather than other noise in the room. 
the second thing that people should do is try and make sure that they are careful with the, the positioning of the microphone. Uh, the microphone should always be pointing upwards and it should be kept as flat as possible. Um, if, if possible, really, people should be using a tripod. I mean, uh, you, you can pick up a tripod for a few pounds these days. So certainly I would recommend that people use the tripod so that they can make sure that the, the microphone is always set to ear position or ear level. You know, you can move it around a little bit as well. Um, ear level for the first measurements um, and sitting uh, nice and flat uh, throughout the measurement process. Whenever you move the microphone, always take the time to make sure that it's sitting nice and flat and that should help to make sure that the, the measurements that are taken are as accurate as possible because it's only on those measurements that the, the processing of the Odyssey can work. So any problems in the measurement uh, get translated through into the filters. So those two tips should really help people. And one thing um, I think we should raise as well, Neil, is you don't just take one measurement. You should you should take as many measurements as possible. Is that right? Yes, you should take as many measurements as possible. Um, they tend to vary between six and eight for the the built-in systems. So always take you know take six or take eight as many as you can do. Um, try and limit it to the the seating areas that you are using. Um, I have seen people who've you know, measured chairs over in the corner and stuff like that that don't really get used that often. Try and keep it into the main seating areas um, and then you'll get the best benefit from the filters that are created. The filters try and create a wide a seating position as possible. So if you're measuring over in the corner of the room or something for one of those, basically you're just giving it some spurious data that doesn't really have any input or impact on the sound that you're going to hear at your main position. So, so don't be too wide in your measurements. Now, Neil, this is all fascinating stuff. And, uh, John, you've managed to hear um, the Odyssey system the last day or so. And by the sounds of it, you seem to be quite impressed with it. Definitely. <clears throat> now, people have seen that I, I reviewed the standalone Odyssey unit for the forums. I still have it in my room because I don't want to give it back because... <laughs> This is a professional system, uh, it's the pro version, um, it comes with its own software, etc. And to be honest, I think it's one of those products that's going to revolutionise the way that um, listen, listening rooms are set up in the future. Now, Neil, I, I could sit and talk for hours on the Odyssey and the benefits of the, the Odyssey Pro system. I know you've had quite a bit of experience with the unit, so maybe you could uh, quickly summarise what the, the pro version actually does. Yeah, I mean, the Pro version has a, a number of advantages over the built-in systems. The, the main advantages are, first of all, it allows 32 positions instead of the, the 6 or 8, as we mentioned before. So there's a huge amount of extra data for the processing to work with. Um, the second thing that the Pro system has is it has very, very powerful DSPs built into it. They're massively powerful. If you actually look into the top of the Pro system, um, you'll see that it's just basically some very, very large heat sinks on top of the DSPs to keep them cool because they, they are so powerful. Um, the, the third thing that the Pro system really has over the, the built-in systems is that it comes, uh, wh when you set it up, you use the, the calibration kit, uh, which is supplied separately. Now, what, the, what that kit contains is a microphone and a microphone preamp which have been calibrated by Odyssey before it leaves the factory so that they're very, very, very accurate. Now, as I said, for the built-in systems, 
the filters can only be as accurate as the data that's being fed into them. So we have much more powerful processing in the Pro version, but we're also able to feed it hugely more accurate measurements of the room response. So those things combine to give just a completely different level of performance altogether from the built-in systems. And I've got to say, and this is, uh, this is me being completely serious here, and I'm not giving any spin whatsoever to stuff, but um, the Pro system, it's fairly intuitive to set up. I found that refreshing after discussing before about the BFD and how complicated that was. It's so refreshing that this is really easy to set up, but the, the main difference is the fact that it takes, well, basically, it takes the room away. I think that's the best way I can describe it. The The sound is, um, well, basically, I'm hearing my system the way it should be heard. The room isn't interfering with the system at all. And um, I'm not going to go on and on, but it truly is a fantastic piece of kit. However, it is on the expensive side, isn't it, Neil? Yeah, I mean, the, there's been a lot of debate on the forum about the, the UK price and so on. You can, you can argue what you want about the price. Um, there are a number of factors that go into setting that price point um, and the, the UK distributor has taken the decision that that is the price level. However, if you think about the, the sort of standard of kit that you're going to be using uh, an Odyssey uh, Multi-EQ Pro with, you're really talking about a pre-amp, uh, uh, a separate power amp, um, some very high quality speakers. So you could easily be talking seven to £10,000 worth of electronics. And in a system like that, the Odyssey is it really it's a no-brainer of a choice because of the difference in the performance level that it can create. Um, it's important for people to realize that when you're doing the setup, the Odyssey creates the test tones itself. The test tones are then fed through the power amp um, and obviously out through the speakers. Now, what that means is that you've completely bypassed any of the setup within the processor. Uh, the Odyssey gives you some tips on how to... Uh, set up the delays and the speaker levels for accuracy uh, it measures those things but, but by bypassing the processor you really are measuring how the, 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 the power amp and the speakers are, are interacting with the room just as you said there Phil and so when you develop the filters the filters are for the room um, and it just takes away all of the crap that the room has got going on and when you put your uh, processor back in wow you know that really is what you're hearing. You're hearing the processor minus all the crap that was going on in the room, um, which the Odyssey has cleaned up. It, it can be quite a, a dramatic improvement, that's for sure. Yeah, and um, it's it's trying to, um, w without sounding like a sales pitch, it's trying to get that message across that this technology really is good. And yeah, it's expensive at the minute, but like you said, if you're running it in a, in a medium to high end system, then the prices and, and, and the performance level that you're getting is a no-brainer. And I'd go as far to say, um, don't replace your amp, don't replace your speakers, your next upgrade. Go and have a look at the Odyssey or go and have a look at the, the integrateds with uh, the Odyssey systems in because I don't know about you, John, but it's uh, it's really impressed me. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed, as I said. I mean, mine's just using through the Denon and... Um you know, I can only imagine what the pro version... Well, actually, I did hear the pro version, didn't I, the Bristol, and I was very impressed. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in my room, it's uh, when you said it's as if, you know, the speakers are there and the room's been taken away, it's the walls that have been taken away because you're not getting a reflective sound. It's giving you the sound as the way the speakers should be heard. Um, and that's, that's just what it gives me, and that's why I felt the collapse of sound was, was quite dramatic in, in what I was hearing. You know, I wasn't getting to hear the speakers properly. Um, and yeah, it's 
It's impressive. Yeah, that's one little trick I like to use on people that come round to to see the system. There's there's a big button right in the front of the Odyssey, and you press it in, and it disengages the equalisation, and yeah. it just collapses. The sound collapses. The room comes back into play again. Click the button again, and it's back again. It's fantastic, and yeah. letting people hear that it's uh, it's been a joy to watch the faces actually, just to <laughs> just to see the difference. So yeah, great tools. Um, so Neil, um, one thing that John touched on earlier was um, using the the SMS one. He was on about his troughs and and how adding um, EQ to that then puts strain on on the subs amplifier or on your power amplifier. How does the Odyssey get round that? Well, typically, what happens when you uh, when you measure a trough uh, in the system, the trough is because of the room nodes, which we explained earlier on. Um, because it's a room node, it doesn't really matter how much. Uh, you boost that signal, you can't get rid of the trough. Uh, that's why it's always better to have peaks if possible and you're using a parametric EQ because you can cut them back quite easily. Now, fortunately, uh, troughs are much less uh, noticeable and bothersome uh, in the sound field uh, than the uh, peaks are. Now, one of the things that we really mentioned that the Odyssey can do is it has many, many different measurement points within the sound field. So on the built-in ones, 8, on the, the Pro version, 32. Now, obviously, as you're measuring between of these points, the uh, troughs and, and peaks that are being measured and, and the response when the Odyssey comes to calculate the filters and so on, it has all of this extra data that it can use from around the room and the various seating positions, and it can create the filters in a way that compensates uh, as much as possible to give a smooth a response over all seating positions. Now, the, the, the response to troughs is different at every single seating position. Um, and so the Odyssey, because it has that power and the flexibility of the multiple measurement points, creates filters which give the best sound over all points without uh, causing undue amplification uh, of troughs that, that really would never cause any correction in the room. So all that's left for me to do now is to thank our panellists tonight. I think it's been a fascinating conversation and certainly an area which we'll come back to in the future and go into a little bit more detail in the various bits and pieces. If you have any further questions for our panellists and if there's anything you want to know about equalisation in your room, then send us an email to help at avpodcast.co.uk. That's help at avpodcast.co.uk and we'll certainly try and answer those questions for you. So all that's left for me to do now is to thank Neil Davidson. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Phil. Uh, John Carlo. Thanks, Phil. And Seth Gecko. Cheers, Phil. And we'll be back again with another home cinema roundtable discussion in the very near future. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. If you have any questions for our panel guests on future roundtable discussions, or you would like to find out more about the Subjects we've discussed this week and ask specific questions, then please email help at avpodcast.co.uk. That's help at avpodcast.co.uk, and we will raise your questions and points in future episodes. If you have any questions regarding the calibration and setup of your system, problems with specific products, seeing artifacts which you don't understand, or any other AV-related problem, please feel free to email us and we will put the subject to the relevant experts for discussion. 
And if you have any ideas for subjects to cover in future roundtable discussions, send that email in to us. This is your podcast and we want you to benefit from the help available from other forum members and industry personalities we invite to discuss topics on the roundtables. That email address again is help at avpodcast.co.uk help at avpodcast.co.uk and we look forward to hearing from you. Jason. Thanks, Phil. And that wraps up another Home Cinema Podcast. Until next week, this is Jason Bradbury saying thanks for listening, stay subscribed and tell your friends. The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.